Hello, everyone. I'm Joseph Long, and this is episode 11 of This is the Long Version. Stories and musings about 21st century parenting, education, and organizing the creative process. Good morning and happy birthday to me. It's not actually my birthday today, but this is my birthday month, and I just turned 44. I have been excited about turning 44 for a long time because I have a special affection for double numbers. So 22 was a good year, I I think. 33 was a good year. 44 is going to be an especially good one. This is not tied into any sort of mystic astrology kind of deal. It's I've just always liked double numbers. So 44 um, is here, and I had a good birthday. I got to do a little bit of longboarding and picnicking with some some people that I love very much and uh, some sunshine. Uh, my dad made cookies, and he makes incredible cookies. And almost what I loved as much as the cookies themselves is the fact that he stayed up late the night before, a couple hours away, and then he got up early the next morning to make these cookies, not a double batch, not a triple batch, a quadruple batch of cookies. And my mom texted me some pictures of him making these and the joy and satisfaction on his face. I mean, I just imagine uh, Michelangelo finishing one of his masterpieces and just kind of resting, sitting back there and thinking, you know what, I did, I did good. I did good. And dad, you did, you did good. We're still enjoying these cookies in spite of some other people taking off with some of the leftovers as well. Um, they're so good. I love my dad's love of baking, very precise baking. There's no sort of, well, we'll try substituting this for that. No, you, you bake according to whatever recipe it is you're using. He's, he's very exacting on that. And he makes very good cookies. And it's very different from how I bake and cook, which is generally surrounded by a gaggle of young children helping out. And the joy that I get is seeing them learn a process which they will, in some cases, have become very proficient at. But along the way, I can't say that I really make or bake or cook really incredible dishes anymore. I like to throw on that anymore to imply that before I had children than I used to. It it makes me feel that for the times that I don't make something amazing, which are many, that there's a, a sole reason why it's not amazing. So if that sounds like I'm throwing my children under the bus metaphorically, then yeah, I'm okay doing that. My daughter has already passed me up in the kitchen. Um, our oldest son is on his way there as well. But I love my dad's love of being in the kitchen and of making things that bring joy to others. And I love my mom's joy in documenting his joy and, and sharing that as well. So I got some good cookie eating and longboarding and just hanging out with people. And it was a good birthday. And it also made me think of another thing that I love about my dad, which is he was so excited to talk about this movie that he just saw that just came out on Netflix. And he referred to it as, quote unquote, one of my favorite movies. And that movie is Enola Holmes, um, starring that girl from Stranger Things. 
we started watching it. We're about three quarters of the way through because that's how we end up watching movies and in segments sometimes. And I'm loving it as well. But again, just as I loved the cookies, just as I loved my dad's excitement over the cookies he made almost as much as the cookies themselves, I've enjoyed imagining my dad watching Enola Holmes and his enjoyment over that almost as much as watching the movie myself with our children now. And it is a very fun and fine film. And I have, I mean, I I shared a love of Sherlock Holmes with my dad when we were younger anyway, so I suppose there's that connection. But my my dad is a, a man, a person of paradox. If you were to, I, I, I would hope that um, his Amazon account has never hacked into as far as his viewing habits. Um, but he has a, a special love for the kind of um, action movies that are not necessarily getting theatrical releases. Um, and you kind of wonder how they keep getting made. And they keep getting made because people keep watching them. And some of the names might be familiar, the Van Dams and Dolph Lundgrens and, and those. But I love how much he still loves them, and I still enjoy watching them occasionally with him. But I also love how he balances that out with a wide-open optimism and, and love of other types of movies. His favorite movie is Sound of Music. Yeah, it's, it's The Sound of Music. He just, he loves that that movie. And there's no paradox in his world for these, the the variety of activities and people and films that he enjoys. And I think there's just a wonderful life lesson in there somewhere. I've, I've learned a, a great deal from this person about living life. And one of them is embracing the paradoxes unapologetically and just loving what you love, loving who you love and doing it all with the greatest amount of joy you can bring up. It also, my dad and Socrates lived in in different eras, but I would consider them kind of um, equivalent figures in terms of their importance to, I could say Western civilization, but um, just the world in general. Um, Socrates, of course, is the most influential Western philosopher of, of all time. Um, I suppose that could be argued, but not very successfully. Um, his death has made me think a lot about life, because we don't actually even know when Socrates was born, maybe around 470 B.C. We do know that he died in 399 B.C., and that's because his his death was far more significant than his than his birth. And I've been thinking, I, I also love, uh, have a love for speculative fiction and uh, some science fiction, and just the ideas of what you know ahead of time or what you can know, what technology can offer in terms of giving us assurance. And the more technology I use, the more certain I am of how grateful I am for the fragility and the unexpectedness of simply living life and the not knowing everything. But this is why it's important for you to know Socrates, the guy who laid the groundwork for all of Western philosophy. So I'm just going to give you 10 short little snippets real quick about Socrates. 
Uh, number one, write it down or don't, and hope one of your followers is taking notes. Examining a history of any figure is problematic, because we are dependent on the accuracy and interpretations of the available documents and evidence we have to learn about someone, but Socrates is especially unique. He is arguably the most influential thinker in the history of Western thought who never wrote anything down, at least anything that's gotten preserved. The only reason we know what we do is because his peers, including a notable student by the name of Plato, wrote about him. These accounts give a picture of sorts, but they are also at the root of what is called the Socratic problem, which is this. We don't know for sure what's true and what's not about Socrates. Plato, his student, wrote of him and about him, but we don't know where the thoughts of Socrates merged or evolved into the thoughts of Plato. So we are left with an interesting challenge, what to accept as truth. Bear that in mind as we run through his life quickly. Chapter 2. Soldier, Father, Etc. Socrates was from a respected family and spent his youth in Athens after the Persian Wars and the glorious victory at Salamis as Pericles led the Greeks through a great period of peace and prosperity. The city was rich, powerful, and the center of thinking and culture. In short, it was the hub of civilization. Western civilization, anyway. He served in the army and possibly saved the life of Alcibiades, who went on to have a renowned career in Athenian politics, mostly. More on that later. But the military life was not where Socrates was to make his mark. In Plato's Dialogues, he writes of how the Delphi Oracle proclaimed that no man was wiser than Socrates. The Oracle was considered to be the mouthpiece of the god Apollo, and as such was taken seriously when it came to prophetic pronouncements, although it wasn't considered infallible. When the oracle said something was, was so, it was generally considered to be so. Socrates, however, was already showing the early signs of questioning authority that he became known for later. He wasn't certain of this particular pronouncement, the pronouncement that no man was wiser than him. Chapter 3, A Shift to Focus on Philosophy. So he set out to learn what it meant to be wise. To do so, he began engaging in conversation with people, poets, artisans, craftsmen, politicians. Eventually, he came to a realization after a conversation with a politician that the truly wise recognize that they are not wise, that the difference between the politician and himself was, quote-unquote, he, he, he thinks he does know when he doesn't, and I don't know and don't think I do, so I am wiser than he by only this trifle, that what I do not know, I don't think I do. I love this. Try to imagine certain leaders or politicians making any kind of statement like this. Chapter 4. Hey you, you're not as smart as you think. After Socrates came to this epiphany, he made it his mission to make others aware of their ignorance. Of course, people are usually very receptive to being informed of their ignorance, even more excited when their own words are used accurately and truly to show their ignorance. That was sarcasm. We can start to see how Socrates starts the process of polarizing people into camps of either hardcore fans or vehement enemies. He became a notable figure in the city and attracted the attention and admiration of many powerful characters. This can be a good thing and sometimes not. In today's world of phones and social media, people fight for attention and try to make their voices loud. 
In the time of Pericles and Socrates, public debate and discussion were both education and entertainment, and made rock stars out of some. And of course, anytime there's a rock star, there's a host of sour figures on the sidelines who are resentful they're not getting more attention. Which brings us to chapter 5, The Sophists. Twisted reasoning, know they self, Aristophanes. We'll cover that here. Socrates was a part of the circle of Pericles, the beloved, for a while, general and statesman of Athens during what is called the Golden Age, from around 480 to 405 BC. No one in this inner circle held a belief in the pantheon of Olympus gods and their mythology, but Socrates was also deeply religious and had great interest in spiritual ideas of salvation and immortality. Even with his involvement with political figures and interest in spirituality, his great focus was on philosophy. 5th century Greece was a place of ideas, of Hellenic philosophy and the attempt to apply human reasoning to problem-solving and explanations of the universe. Figure, figures such as Democritus, Thales, and Pythagoras were investigating ideas in science and mathematics that anticipated modern discoveries by centuries. But as in most revolu revolutions or innovations, there were competing schools of thought. One of these schools was known as the Sophists. The word means wisdom, and they believed that reason should be used to study humanity rather than the universe. Say that one more time. Reason should be used to study humanity rather than the universe. So much of their focus was on practical things such as winning arguments in politics and law. They became very adept at using logic and reasoning to crafty ends, and eventually gave the term sophistry a bad name. Today the word refers to false, trivial logic for an ulterior purpose. They helped shift thought inward and investigating how logic could be used to human problems. Socrates followed a similar path to them in this regard. He is often credited with the maxim, know thyself, which certainly is apropos, but was not actually coined by him. It was a long-standing phrase from the Delphi Oracle. Sometimes Socrates was accused of using their tricks, but the reality, as we know, is that he was similar to them primarily in the sense that they concentrated on human rather than scientific problems. Chapter 6, Investigation of Ideas More than anything, he was interested in exploring ideas, and he had a simple method for exploring these ideas. It was this. Ask questions. He was okay being treated as stupid or simple, because it made it easier to draw people out. He continually, he continually asked for definitions. What do you mean by virtue? What do you mean by knowledge? What is the soul? He developed the idea of forcing an opponent or antagonist to define the words they use, which leads me to believe that many current political and religious figures would also not consider him to be a friend. He demanded clear and precise definitions in order to avoid, quote-unquote, the inexactitude of expression that comes from the ambiguous use of words. Chapter 7, Defining Terms this was one of his greatest contributions to Western thought and the development of Greek philosophy, the emphasis on defining terms and clear and precise meanings. It led to the Socratic method, which involves a critical discussion or dialogue of back-and-forth questions. What do you mean by this? What do you mean by that? This emphasis is what later led to Plato's logical clarity and Aristotle's science of logic. In fact, the first principle of logic, as Aristotle describes, is the clear definition of terms. Aristotle went on to develop the art of logical definition. The Socratic method was also a catalyst later in the creation of the scientific method that is fundamental today and that focuses on questioning hypotheses and evidence in order to get to the truth. 
Socrates was a relentless lover of knowledge and pursuer of ideas. Throughout his dialogues with Athens citizens, he came to believe more and more in the idea that humans know nothing of how to live their lives virtuously in order to obtain happiness. Chapter 8. The Problem with Too Much Democracy Socrates was a free thinker, evidenced most strongly by his insistence that people listen with their conscience, not that of the gods. However, he was also a steadfast and loyal citizen of his city-state. He saw part of his role as being to help others understand the responsibilities of citizenship. As a part of Pericles' circle, he probably identified to some extent with the general's democratic ideals, as opposed to those of the aristocrats. Yet, he was also not afraid to speak out about the faults of democracy and the dangerous influence of uninformed, uneducated voices emotionally ranting and clamoring for attention. In Plato's The Republic, Book 6, Socrates compares democracy to a ship. The basic idea is this. If you're on a ship that's going through a storm, who do you want captaining the ship? The captain or a group of untrained passengers? Socrates wasn't necessarily against democracy, but he was against the idea of the uneducated having a vote in a society's fate. He believed that voting should be taught, because people are foolish unless they are taught otherwise. Wise man. Chapter 9, Peloponnesian War, Reign of Terror, Death. The short version backdrop for Athens at this point in Socrates' life is this. Athens is at war with Sparta. Yes, that's Sparta. The Sparta that raises warriors from birth and leaves the weak in the cold for the wolves to eat. That's Sparta. This is known as the Peloponnesian War, which technically took place in three phases from 431 to 404 BC. Guess what? Athens is losing. And then they're no longer losing. They lost. Badly, horribly, utterly. Athenian democracy is no more. Under Sparta's direction, an aristocratic government is installed known as the Thirty Tyrants. A reign of terror follows, a reign which 2,000 years later, a certain Maximilien Robespierre most certainly must have been familiar with. See French Revolution, late 1700s AD. Socrates, because he is a patriot and a citizen, takes a break from heavy philosophical musings and agrees to be named to the Council of 500. He bravely stands up to the Spartans and resists orders to arrest intended victims and probably would have been killed himself if the council hadn't been overthrown and democracy restored. Tragically, though, the Democrats are able to do what the oligarchs couldn't, kill Socrates. Spoiler alert, he's about to die in one of history's greatest deaths until Jesus the Christ. He is charged with, quote-unquote, impiety and the corruption of youth, trumped up charges that are the most convenient way to attack him, given there's nothing else they can come up with. He is accused of diverting youth from the religion of their ancestors, the Olympian gods. This was a ridiculous charge, as Athenians were not above poking fun at their own gods. One of Socrates' greatest enemies, the comic playwright Aristophanes, wrote and performed many hilarious parodies of the gods that could certainly be considered blasphemous. Point is, they were not especially sensitive to this, as opposed to, say, the Catholic Church in Spain 1,800 years later. It was the best way to get Socrates, though. Scholars have tried to figure out how this approach got anywhere. It might be something like this. Remember Alcibiades? I think I'm pronouncing his name correctly. The notion of the words I mispronounce is a whole nother conversation. I've read a great deal more than I've seen so I, I continually learn of words that I've mispronounced, and I'm suddenly realizing that I've, I've read the name Alcibiades much more than, I, there's not a whole lot of just, um, you know, television programs or films that just casually have the name Alcibiades. So I 
think I'm close to pronouncing it correctly, Alcibiades. Remember Alcibiades, the soldier and leader whose life Socrates had saved as a young man? So Alcibiades turned traitor in the Peloponnesian War. Another friend, Chrysus, had been a pupil and went on to become one of the 30 tyrants and instigators of the reign of terror against the Democrats. I can't resist throwing in a hashtag here. Let no good hashtag, let no good deed go unpunished. The Democrats are now back in power, and Socrates has been linked to two men connected to the bad guys. Choose your friends wisely, or at least don't save the wrong guy in the battlefield. So Socrates, unfairly, is linked to these two hated figures and with the forces of anti-democracy. They couldn't go after him politically, however, because an amnesty was in place that would have covered Socrates, but blasphemy against the gods? No amnesty for that. Convenient. Historians believe that the goal was to silence Socrates, not to actually push for his execution. Socrates, however, was scornful and unbending, an Athenian citizen to the last. He ridiculed the accusation and refused to apologize, retract, or bend. He was condemned to death by a close vote of 500 Athenians, and still might have been able to accept a lesser penalty, but he refused, saying that, instead of being punished for his teachings, he should receive a public reward. He offered to pay a tiny sum as a fine. The amount <laughs> was so small that it was insulting. His friends offered to raise money and pay more, but he refused, saying that he was ready and willing to die. They tried to help him escape, but he also refused, saying that because he was a citizen, it was part of his social contract to accept the sentence. Thirty days later, surrounded by friends and conversing to the last, Socrates drank hemlock, a deadly poison. Even to the last moment, he was discussing important matters of life and death and the soul. Unfortunately, even at the last, he was still not writing anything down. Chapter 10, Legacy Socrates is rightly considered one of the most influential philosophers in Western thought. He inspired countless others to become critics of government and society and to continually seek wisdom through questioning and demanding the clear definition of terms. The way he went about learning, about focusing reason inward on the human mind and, and on constant hair-splitting and pursuing truth, has been inspiring for thousands of years and laid a bedrock for many big-idea thinkers who came later most notably Plato and Aristotle, and, I would argue, my father, Lee Long. If we're going to talk about Socrates, I felt it might be a good time to talk a little bit about the origins of the universe. So, we talk about origins of Western philosophy, let's, why not just cover origins of the universe while we're at it. There have been many different ideas throughout history of how the universe came to be. My favorite thought about the knowledge of where we came from is regarding knowledge itself, and is from the philosopher, can you guess? Yeah, Socrates. When praised for being so wise, he allegedly replied, I know that I know nothing. I love this. I love learning. I love learning new ideas and connecting the dots amongst disparate evidence and information. I love accumulating data points to weigh as evidence and reading ancient religions and philosophical texts and studying art, music, literature, poetry, to better understand the universe and humanity's role in it. But what I do know is the more I've learned, the more I've learned that I don't know very much. And there's way more I don't know than what I do know. Again, I completely ripped off Socrates for this. What do we know about where we came from? It depends on who you ask and at what point in history. I write this as a Christian who views the Bible as a key part of my worldview and cosmological beliefs. 
I also write this as a Christian who will do my best to use available evidence to discuss and pursue truth and not stick the stuff that doesn't fit out of sight and pretend it doesn't exist. I love science, despite the limitations of my understandings and knowledge, and will do my best to convey an even-handed description of the ways scientists currently describe the beginning of the universe. And I will also include my own thoughts, understandings, and conjectures, followed by my admission of failure to fully comprehend, solve, or explain anything. But here's the deal, to the best of my understanding. Forgive me, and thank you. There are three main theories, scientific theories, that have held sway over the centuries. I'm not going to discuss the first two because they've mostly been ruled out, but so you know, they are referred to as the constant state and oscillating model theories. You'll probably find stuff about new matter being created, consistent densities, deflated balloon analogies, etc. Feel free to take to the stars or to the Google with those in hand. And just as another aside, of course, everything we know about what Socrates said is via his most famous pupil, Plato. So again, we'll never really know for sure whether Socrates actually said the things we think he said or whether his favorite student ascribed it to him. His famous statement, again, is known as the Socratic paradox. There's a lot of things we may never know for sure, but we keep asking questions and forming theories based on the best available evidence. I also sneakily sneaked this bit in about Socrates to remind us, including myself, that there are four lens through which to see the world, and religion is one of them, but not the only one, the other three being art, science, and philosophy. So on to origin of the universe, thoughts, and theories. Number one, Big Bang Theory. This is the one most widely accepted by science, and states that the universe began approximately 14 billion years ago, give or take 100 million, and that it started out cuter than a tiny little atom. Things were super hot and super dense and started expanding, and pretty soon there was a sound almost reminiscent of a bang. And boom, things started cooling, and a bunch of different things like planets and stars and moons started getting formed. So, in an atom-sized nutshell, there's a little atom. It gets hot, it gets dense, it gets bigger, it blows up. All the matter blown out from it goes on to create the universe that we now know, and scientists use leftover thermal radiation to try and measure not only a timeline for the past, but form a guesstimate of how the universe is continuing to expand and what will happen based on the best evidence we have and the best equipment we have available. Through science, we continue to know more and more. And also, we learn more and more about how much we don't know. The oldest known collection of stars in the universe have been dated to somewhere between 11 and 14 billion years old, according to uh, space.com. Um, as a reminder, atoms are all tiny. They're super tiny. Creation theory. This is where things get heated and controversial and tempers flare and school boards get involved and politicians wave their fists and people choose sides. Science or religion, Big Bang or creationism, also sometimes called intelligent design. Again, in the spirit of transparency, I'll say this again. I study, write, and learn from the perspective of someone to whom faith is an important part of my worldview. As a thousand science fiction stories and films have taught us, there are things seen and things not seen. And I believe that there are things as yet unexplained by science that may never be. I believe that there is a supernatural figure involved in the machinations of the universe that has had a direct hand in the creation and the comic tragic arc of Earth and her history. The blueprint for many Christians is the Bible, and this is where the fight begins. Fundamentalist Christians turn to the Bible as an absolute and unerring description of Earth's beginning that is often aggressively asserted as a replacement for the scientific explanations of quote-unquote non-believers and atheists. Note, 
for all Christians, by definition, the Bible is the sacred text for religious belief for one defining themselves as a Christian. So, scientists point the other finger and dismiss a primeval reliance on myth and magic to explain phenomena that are now explainable through evidence-based methods. But do we know everything? And of what we do know, to what level of precision are we confident that we are completely correct? When we look at various points in history where we were absolutely certain that our understanding of a particular phenomena was complete and accurate, and then it changed, how does that impact our ability to retain a certain sense of humility now? Chuck Klosterman, one of my favorite writers on the topics of pop culture and thinking about old things in fresh ways, talks about this in one of his books. He specifically talks about gravity and poses the question, and I'm paraphrasing here, what if we take a basic assumption about gravity, that we know how, how it works now, and it, turn, it turns out to be completely wrong? What if in 500 years, humans or whatever life forms exist are laughing at us and at our cute little infantile understanding of gravity? I realize how this can be taken as the cornerstone of conspiracy theory. How can we trust anything in that case? But it's not. I believe in science as a huge part of what helps us answer fundamental questions about the universe and the earth. I also believe it doesn't answer every question, and that's where we can look to other disciplines to help out. We are a Christian family and are raising our children with that as a major framework for the way we approach and live life. By definition, we are believers. Believers in something and someone that exists beyond what is provable. But I am not afraid for me, for our family, for my children to learn and discover truth. That includes science, all of science, and the best explanation scientists have to offer. I believe that Earth exists as something more than an accidental collision of dust and gases. That is the framework I have chosen to start my quest for knowledge from. Does that make it dogma? Uh, sure, I suppose so. I've, I've ended up in the no-man's land between warring sides and the ongoing struggle between religion and science, faith, and reason. I believe in more than I can prove. Just a little bit, but that little bit is a big thing. I believe that there is so much I don't know, and I'm learning of the processes and ways that the universe and Earth specifically have changed and are changing over time. If nothing else, I believe in the beautiful home humanity has been gifted, regardless of how you believe it first came into being. And I believe we are expected to take care of it, to safeguard and protect its resources and its life forms, to learn all we can about the natural world and how we can best care for it, to ask big cosmological questions about where we came from and why we're here, and in the end, be able to keep a spirit of humility about everything we don't know. How about expansion? One thing we can agree on, the universe is getting bigger. We call this expansion the opposite of contraction. And of course, every time says someone something like, there's one thing we can agree on, then invariably it ends up not being true as such as life. So do you ever watch the weather report on television where masses of colors and arrows are moving around a screen and it's hard to tell exactly what they mean, so you just focus on laughing at the weather person's hair? They usually say something about the Doppler effect. The Doppler effect is named after someone whose last name might be Doppler, I, I don't know. But the Doppler effect is important because it's how we perceive changes in the frequencies of waves. Specifically, changes in the frequencies of sound and light wave frequencies. Again, the important word is perceived. The way we perceive sound or light to be changing as it moves toward us or away from us. For example, when a loud sound is coming toward you, you perceive the sound waves to be closer and therefore higher pitched. And of course, the inverse. Moving away, you perceive a lower frequency. 
So scientists use this to gauge whether stars and planets are moving closer to us or farther away. Just like with sound, light waves are either close together or far apart. If a planet is moving toward us, the wave is compressed, and we perceive it is more of a blue color. If a planet or star is moving away, it will have more of a reddish color. And guess what? The light we're seeing from many forms outside our galaxy is on the red end of the spectrum, meaning what again? So there's that few little things to think about. As far as things go to think about, we've been talking about Socrates, we've been talking about my dad, we've been talking about Origins of the Universe, all that. I figured, why not talk about one of my other favorite things, schooling and education. We're in a tough time right now. A lot of stuff going on this year. A lot of people not in a school building, learning from home. And a while back, I put together, uh, actually in June of 2019, I put together um, my our uh, Ten Commandments of Homeschooling, and really for any schooling and, and life in general. Um, I am a strong proponent of sneaky education, in which lessons and knowledge and wisdom are crammed into the crevices of every day, every month of the year. Um, but I thought this little manifesto might be helpful for us, maybe for others, in helping to focus on optimizing not just our learning experience, but even more importantly, our relationships with one another and helping to bring out each other's strengths. Um, one of the most important things, first and foremost, is we we can try to fail. We, 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 we can try at modeling these things for our children, and we will fail. We do fail frequently. But we, we can model these things for our children. We can try to do that. I am also a big proponent of writing things down that are important. So these are things that I think are important, not just for homeschool, not just for any school, but for living well with those you care about and those you want to help create a lifelong interest in, in learning and building strong relationships with. Um, also, if you didn't notice, I'm a strong proponent of driving phrases into the ground, such as saying, I am a strong proponent of. Anyway, Ten Commandments of Homeschooling and Any Schooling and Life in General. I will respect myself. That means no put-downs or self-deprecating remarks. I will have a can-do attitude, not, I'm so bad at this, kind of one. I will respect others. I will help others learn and actively support those around me with my words and actions. I will not put them down. I will respect our space. I will pick up and keep not only my area, but the common area we share, in a state that is clean, organized, and allows all of us to focus on learning. I will ask questions. Lots of them. I will actively ask questions that are relevant, appropriate, and respectful. I will not despair when I don't know the answer to something. I will ask more questions and get help to solve the problem. I will embrace the idea that oftentimes the question is more important than the answer. I will bring my best, every day, to every activity, assignment, and task. It is difficult to do, but try. Try to make it a habit. Sometimes I won't feel like it. Some days I'll fail at it. That's okay. I will still try to make it a habit to bring the best I can to each activity and each opportunity. I will, bring a, I will bring a cheerful spirit. I will bring a spirit of good cheer to each day, or I will try hard to do so. 
When I'm not feeling cheerful, which is okay, I will at least be positive and respectful to others. I will improve steadily and regularly. Each time I do something, I will try to improve, even if it's a little tiny bit. I will listen well. Learning new things can be challenging. I will do my best to listen and follow directions, instructions, and explanations as they are given, and follow up that deliberate listening with articulate and relevant questions. I will speak in a confident, non-whiny voice. I will be proactive. I will look for opportunities to learn and to use my time well. I will finish tasks and assignments I'm given without complaint, and I will follow instructions and directions promptly. I will practice gratitude. I have a special opportunity to learn, to learn from others, to learn from myself, to learn from parents and teachers and siblings and others. I will express appreciation daily and sincerely for what goes well and for what I'm grateful for. When something is not the way I want, I will look for constructive ways to change it instead of complaining, whining, or grumbling. So, I I wrote these for the kids specifically with schooling in mind, but as I read them through, I realized they're probably every bit as much for me, if not more so, and that they're relevant in many areas beyond formal education. To borrow one of my inspiration, one of the one another inspirational figure in my life, the architect Frank Gehry, his wonderful phrase, let us bumble forward into the unknown and do so with panache, curiosity, spirit, and camaraderie. To learning until death may it be far off. Thanks for listening to this episode. We're heading into October soon, uh, final months of, of what a year, what a year 2020 has been. I'm not going to say anything more right now, but thanks for listening. And uh, I hope to know that you're listening <laughs> next time. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Joseph out.